people we have this amazing lady called sue who's died now but she she kind of had never run ever she was 70 or 71 when she was diagnosed was in the hospital couldn't get out of bed saw a flyer kind of joking for the 5k yoi group jokingly said i'm going to do that when i get out of here um couldn't even walk to the toilet then got out of hospital that month she turned up she walked it jogged a little bit built up to running the whole thing and she she always said for her it was just the crutch and it gave her something to focus on that was a date in the diary that wasn't cancer because when you've got cancer and you're on treatment everything revolves around hospital appointments and chemotherapy dates and scan dates and when you might get your scan dates and having this something positive to aim at um and she said you've got this great quote she said when people ask me how i am i don't talk about the cancer i just tell them i've started running Hello there and a very warm welcome or welcome back to the podcast. My name is Steve Ingham. I'm an applied scientist and leader from the world of high performance sport. And on the podcast, I explore all aspects of human performance, whether that is getting stronger, fitter, mentally more prepared, eating better, playing better, leading and coaching in different ways, but also how we perform in work individually and as teams. And the way I do that is by speaking with great scientists, practitioners, researchers, coaches, athletes, and entrepreneurs. I'm also keen to talk to people from outside of sports, people who are just interested in how we perform as humans. If you enjoy the podcast, then please do share it with friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe. And if you want to support and champion us, then please do leave a review on iTunes. This week's guest is Dr. Lucy Gossage. So Lucy is a triathlete and a doctor, and underpinning all of that, she is a phenomenal person. Lucy started her career almost by accident, just trying out a triathlon for fun. And then she got the bug, entering her first Ironman and steadily realising that she could go pro, eventually taking 12 Ironman titles. And so in between preparing for swim, bike, run and performing, Lucy studied medicine at Cambridge, where she also undertook a PhD in kidney cancer. And she's now a consultant oncologist at Nottingham University Hospital. We talk about how it all started for Lucy, her rise to being pro, how she managed the effort of medical and triathlon training. We discuss how she preferred not to overcomplicate her training, keeping things simple and unfussy, and in this case, not actually using a terribly scientific approach. We also discuss her career as a cancer doctor, how this gave her perspective through the hard days of training and racing, how she copes working with patients who are suffering each day and now how through her own charity 5k your way she is campaigning to encourage those living with cancer to stay physically active well welcome to the well podcast, welcome to lucy. the podcast how lucy are how you? are you uh, very good. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, it's, it's great to chat with you. And as I said, I'm uh, glad I've discovered that the podcast is running because I've got a good good backlog to, to dig into now. Fantastic. Well, I'm humbled that you tune in. Um, kick me off by letting me know, how's your day been today? 
what have you been up to today uh so a bit of a rant so i normally work uh, full-time on a monday um but i've got the afternoon off because i'm on a course uh not now i'm on a course tomorrow um and wednesday which i don't normally work so i ran into work uh it's about 10k um i prepped for the multidisciplinary team meeting it takes about an hour then I went and saw a couple of inpatients and then I chaired the multidisciplinary team meeting for context, I'm an oncologist. And then I ran home, I had some lunch, did a few bits and bobs for Move charity and now I'm talking to you. Uh, oh. So there you go. So I've got 20k, 20 odd k running in, um, just commuting. <laughs> I'm curious as much as anything because just, just looking through your biog and what you've accomplished and achieved um i'm just wondering about how you've managed it all um as much as the elite achievements and the elite sort of time management is uh is something i'd probably just dock my hat to it's um it's incredible how you manage it all so so you run to work you work and then you run back and that's how you get your exercise in at the moment is that right yeah i mean i i don't I... You know, I don't train for anything other than for adventures in the summer. Um, but I haven't driven to work in three years now. Um, so I always either run or bike. Um, and it's just, it's just, it's like cleaning my teeth now. Yeah, I, it wouldn't even cross my mind to get in the car, whatever the weather was. Um, and I, yeah, I like it. I think the, the decompart, you know, you wake up in the morning and it's grim weather and you don't always want to run into work, but um, you always feel better for it. And actually coming home in the evening it's such a good decompartmentalization to kind of split off that work particularly after you know a bad day where you've had some tough conversations um I realized that in lockdown actually which is when I was kind of transitioning from being a professional athlete to to not being a professional athlete and I realized how important that um that commuting kind of headspace time and sometimes I'll run a bit further just because I need a bit more time before getting home uh to think 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 everything out um yeah so I um, can't remember what the question was but I yeah I use yeah. my commuting and then I go on adventures um and I do do the odd kind of session turbo session but it's really just to be fit enough to ride with my fast friends and go on crazy you know crazy bike adventures and things in the summer <laughs> i presume you've got a car so i mean is that something that you just you just or you don't have a car so you just don't even think it's a, an option you're not even tempted just to jump in i do have a car but it's very much a car for big supermarket shops or to go somewhere for <laughs> you know for an adventure but you know i i joke i i quite often i i was in norfolk this weekend and i cycled there um just because I, I I do just love that I, I guess it's a you know I think about the environment but fundamentally I love just using my own body to get somewhere um and I think commuting is such a time efficient way to get to work and it takes away that choice of because I know I always feel better for the exercise um but it sometimes takes willpower to do it and and actually that commute just takes it's free I call it completely free free exercise, free headspace, um, and there's no getting home, having to make the decision to do something, because, you know, quite often you probably wouldn't do it then. And and can I ask you about the route? What Do you have a safe route that you feel happy to, to run, presumably in the dark, or, um, on uh, winter evenings and mornings? 
Oh, I, I mean, I look ridiculous. <laughs> My patients sometimes see me leaving and they just look at me like, you know, in the winter, <laughs> I've got this big yellow flashing straps and head torch and, you know, God knows what. Um, in all honesty, the, the cycle route, like if I cycle, I think the shortest way to work is about 9K. Um, cycling is, is really not very nice going across Nottingham. Mm. Um, so I tend to cycle in on a Monday with all my stuff and then run back, run in Tuesday and then, yeah, bring the bike home on Thursday. Um, but I'd often cycle in a slightly longer way just because it's nicer on the country roads. Um, but I think, you know, as long as you've got good lights, um, then then you're generally pretty safe. I, I've never never once felt threatened running um, or biking. I mean, you know, traffic and dodgy car drivers sometimes, but I've, I've never felt unsafe running on my own. So popping over to Norfolk from Nottingham, what are we talking, 150 kilometres? That sort of distance? Yeah, it was about 100 miles, 110 miles or something. Okay. Um, but again, you know, it was, I got a lift back with them. Um, I was there with my mum for the weekend. But You went with the wind, is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but yeah, for me, I just, it it was just, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I probably wouldn't have done it had the forecast not been nice, but it was gloriously sunny. I'd, I'd booked that day in for a day for myself, which I do. I do sometimes and I call it Lucy time and I just block out my diary, don't book in meetings and things. Um, and actually, I do need time sometimes after work to process everything that's got and it catches up with you. And having those days where you're not talking to anyone, you're not really listening to anything, just kind of on your bike or running or whatever, not on emails. It it does mean the world of good. Um so yeah and it's kind of an excuse I, I always think I would have probably done a three-hour ride and then spent three hours in the car so why not do a six-hour ride so just just looking down the list of, of achievements Lucy that winning three times UK Ironman Wales twice Lanzarote two-time European duathlon studying medicine at Cambridge PhD focusing on kidney c- cancer I'm just um I'm just in awe um how how did you how did this sort of start? What did you did you start pursuing medicine or medals first? Oh, so I I mean I wasn't sporty as um, a kid, and actually I tell I tell the story of coming last in a cross country race when I was 14, 13 or fourteen, and that that stopped me doing anything competitively until I was twenty six when I entered the the London Triathlon and that you know the London triathlon was not competitive I entered it as a challenge um I was going through some issues with a boyfriend long-term boyfriend and and it was very much I was a junior doctor working hard playing hard and having some relationship issues and a friend said oh why don't you do a triathlon so I I kind of bought myself a bike and uh and I could swim but I I couldn't do front call I could at university I could never imagine how I remember a girl I used to go and do breaststroke and I'd swim a mile breaststroke which is I couldn't do that now but I can never fathom how anyone could swim more than two lengths front call at once I just anyway I did the London triathlon absolutely loved it um and then yeah then my boyfriend and I broke up um very long story short, uh, I was teaching some medical students on the ward. They told me about a friend of theirs. They knew I'd done the London Triathlon. So we woke up the week after the London Triathlon. Um, they said, oh, I've got a friend who's doing this Ironman. And I said, what's an Ironman? And they told me, um, you know, 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, a marathon. 
And I just, I was just like, well, that's ridiculous. You know, that's impossible. That's stupid. No one can do that. Um, and then I was out in a nightclub and I think there was this little seed just planted there in my brain. Um, I had a few drinks, said to some friends, if I'm single on New Year's Day, I'm going to do an Ironman. New Year's Eve was in Scotland um, at a party, met a guy who'd done an Ironman, said it was the most amazing thing ever. I was like, oh, that's fate. So, um, yeah, the 2nd of January, I went to the gym said if you can run a half marathon on the treadmill you're going to sign up for this Ironman and um, that was by far the longest run I'd ever done um, kind of press go in my fancy junior doctor gym you know we all go to all pay for junior doctor for, for posh gyms and things and however long later fell off and went home and signed up for Ironman UK and um, yeah so it definitely wasn't a uh, you know any kind of elite sporting backgrounds and and actually I, I used to and you know as time went on I call myself the accidental pro because it really it really was complete accident and definitely not you know definitely not planned or not something I'd ever dreamt of if someone had said you know when I press go on that treadmill you're going to end up racing professionally I would literally have fallen off and, and I just it, it was just so incomprehensible nothing you know at no point ever in my life had I ever, ever contemplated being good at anything other than I was quite a good tennis player, but, but you know, not, not, a, not competitively, just kind of with friends. So it sort of started as um, a bit of an outlet in a similar way that your commute provides you with some decompression or some, some th thoughtfulness for the beginning of the day. This provided you a bit of an outlet through some relationship disruption, did it? Yeah, well, it's more just a challenge, I think. It was more, yeah, I guess an outlet. I guess I guess a lot of the big decisions I make start from hearing, you know, a little seed being planted. And I think, I think it was something about doing something that I genuinely did not think that was possible to do an Ironman. And I wasn't, when I did that first Ironman, I wasn't part of a club. I, I downloaded a training program off the internet you know a free thing I didn't I didn't you know I didn't do and I didn't know what an interval was in terms of training I all I did I went out and I swam and I built up to swim on my own the distance I went out and rode my bike and you know I had one of those wheelie pens that you wheel on the maps to kind of vaguely so I used to rip a page out of the A to Z this is all on my own. I didn't know anyone apart from apart from the guy in Scotland who became Ironman geek because he kept telling me, "Oh, you need to train like properly." And and you know, I was like, "I'm going to go and sit on the exercise bike in the gym for an hour and then play tennis." So I called them tennis bricks. <laughs> um, and he'd be like, well, "You can't. You need to go and do stuff." I said, "No, I don't. I just need to ride ride a bike." Um, so I'd I'd just take myself out, and I wish I had recorded them because some of those rides were probably pretty epic. Um, but I think not having any, I didn't know what was normal. I did do all my long runs hangover. Again, not not really sensible, but actually probably isn't bad training for an Ironman because if you can run three hours, you know, on a hangover, <laughs> then you can probably do an Ironman marathon. Um, so it was, but I genuinely, genuinely did not think it was possible. I didn't know anyone else who'd done it apart from Matt the you know the the Ironman geek guy as I called him um I wasn't part of a club all the I, I was I wasn't a beast but I was a lot bigger than I am now and all the doctors in the hospital were just like you won't you know you won't be able to, they looked at me and they, they, you won't be able to, you, you won't be able to do it I genuinely didn't think I could do it and I think that was what drew me 
because it was actually with hindsight it was the first time in my life ever ever that I'd signed up to something I didn't know that I could finish because I'd always before only put myself into something if I thought deep down I'd I'd succeed at it mm. so you've you've done a, a standard sort of tri- um, Olympic distance triathlon in London and then you've just gone straight for an, an Ironman and what was your training like for that you said that you were on the bike in the gym you're doing various bits of of, of running what what were you doing in, your, in the lead up to your first Ironman or that allowed you to com- accomplish it well, I have, so I have, I did actually keep a, a training diary. It was just a diary, it wasn't a training diary, but I had a diary and I wrote what I did and it would be like 2.2 hours, 25 minute run, two hours, double tennis. <laughs> There's one, one entrance that I think I, I can't remember, I got a bad diarrhea or something. And I, I, I don't, you know, I, it was all very, it was all very basic, like swam, I'd, I'd count the lengths, 120 lengths or whatever it is biked three and a half hours maybe however much because I didn't even have a speedo on my bike um so I and and it was it was all on my own bar you know the odd ride with Ironman Geek um so it was um yeah it was just getting out and doing stuff but actually you know and Ironman a lot of it is just about durability and probably the fact that I would go and sit on the exercise bike and then go and play tennis and then go and play squash and then maybe, you know, do whatever. And I, re- I remember I was very, I was very meticulous. So I did have this training plan that I'd printed off and I remember leaving work at, um, I think we finished night shifts at like 10 o'clock, but sometimes you'll get out at half nine. And I remember cycling three miles then to the gym to go and do a 30 minute swim at 10 o'clock at night before going home. Um, so I was quite... I was quite, I was very, you know, I did the work, but um, it was, it's quite, I shared it on Instagram a couple of times, some of my training diaries, because it's quite funny. <laughs> and, and so what changed for you then? Uh, presumably if you've, if you've gone for some fairly amateur preparation for London, and then you start doing that volume of training, regardless of perhaps how sophisticated it was, what, what changed in terms of fitness, body um, mindset as much as anything not a lot so I mean I, I I'll never forget lining up at the start so it was down in Sherbourne when I'm in UK, UK used to be there and um, you know you're with all these people in wetsuits everyone seems to know what they're doing um, and there was you know <laughs> chopper goss lining up um, but I yeah I, mean, I was still pretty big um, I actually w- Looking back, I I had an incredible race. I think I ran three hours forty six or something, which wow. on a hilly marathon, given where I was coming, that was an incredible run, like an incredible run, really. Um, but I, yeah, I just I just went in really thinking, you know, I I was back at work nine o'clock the next day. I just started as an oncologist. Um, I hadn't really, I just hadn't really thought about the enormity of it. I mean, with you looking back, you're like, why? <laughs> you, you know, you thought it was going to take you 14 hours or 15 hours or whatever, um, which would have meant you'd be finishing at 10 o'clock at night or nine o'clock at night. How on earth did you ever think that it was going to be feasible to, to be back at work in Nottingham, which is a four hours drive away at nine o'clock the next morning? Um, but again, that naivety, just, I just loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, so I, yeah, I, and there must've been a bit of talent there, but I did, 
I did work hard for it. I'd done kind of the six hour, seven hour rides, um, just with no structure, kind of, yeah. In the in the gym still, was it? Is it on a fitness fitness first gym bike, was this still, or was this out on the road by this time? Um, no, no, I did I I mean I had so I had a I had a road bike, like a five hundred pound specialised with brakes on the top tube and so I think I had solid tires because I didn't know how to mend mend a puncture um and yeah but yeah yeah there must have been some talent but um I, I do think people overcomplicate it and and actually you just need to every single week I would say without fail I did do a long bike ride and I did do a long run and and now if I was I'm not a coach but if I was ever to coach someone I'd say actually you've got to do the basics and looking back I did the basics very well I just perhaps mm. didn't realize it um mm. But I think for me, you know, everything I've done in life, I guess I've always doubted myself. And at uni, I was thought I was, I genuinely thought I would probably not pass the exams. And, you know, I was, why shouldn't be at Cambridge? Everyone's too clever. But, and that kind of fear actually meant that I ended up doing quite well. So maybe with the Ironman, because I genuinely, I'm not just, I genuinely didn't think I could do it. That that fear of not being able to, I did appreciate what a big thing it was. And so I did do the work albeit very <laughs> very amateur style on you know lucid terms okay the classic the classic fear-based preparation then of, of understanding it once you've signed up and then starting to reverse question <laughs> can I do this I'm not sure I can I'm therefore I'm going to um so so that's um that's fascinating in itself just about how you you were doubting yourself but you're also challenging yourself you're also managing these competing demands. I'm just curious how how that was as a junior doctor, still training for an Ironman, and you give it a bit of a clue as to as to driving back late after the event has has finished, and then having to 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 get up early for the next day. Um, did you get a sense? Was it was it just super tiring at that stage, or did you have a sense? Actually, I'm recovering quite well which is in itself a superpower as you were as you're trying to manage the two demands um no, so mum and dad did drive me back I didn't drive myself back but um right. recovery was would not have even factored in it wasn't even a concept that I had ever heard of so this was 2006 ish so we were working you know you were working long hours you do weeks of nights where you're doing 14 hours a day for seven days and um yeah they it, it was tough and I was very much still party Lucy at that time so I worked very hard but I also played very hard I organized all the mess parties so the junior doctors mess where all the doctors socialize I was you know I was the person that organized those I was um I was newly single after a long years long time relationship I was very much not going to let this get in the way of my social life um so recovery, <laughs> you know, I, I guess naivety, I would, I would, I would put sleep away. I, you know, I, that I, I would, st if I had a run to do, I'd do the run before I went out. I wouldn't do the run and then go, you know, not go out. And, you know, my nutrition and stuff was, again, I just, I thought that you should just eat pasta and I didn't, you know, I ate a lot of pasta and um, that mm. was how I thought you should should fuel it um mm. so I was I was very very naive but um in some ways that's not necessarily a bad thing 
No, you, you, you hit upon, a, I think, an interesting concept about having that sort of rawness of preparation and doing the, the basics really well, not, not deviating from that and trying to look and spend effort, look for fancy little shortcuts, spend effort on those when actually they're not really going to give you an awful lot of return. I think that as us sports scientists tend to have a bad rap for overcomplicating it, as you say, where you're fussing about one heart rate beat versus another, um, forgetting the, the, the big issues. Yeah, and remember, this was not, I was not aiming to do, I was literally doing this as a one-off challenge to finish it. There was no element of competition, of time, of it was going to be a thing. It was just a one-off challenge. Something, someone had said, put this in my brain, and I thought, do you know what, I'm going to see if I can do it. I I, I, I 100% thought that would be the only Ironman I would ever do it was, you know, it was a one-off. So it was, it, it wasn't really going into it as a sports endeavor. It was going into it like climbing Kilimanjaro or something. Yeah. And then, and then what happened then? So, so once you got shuttled back by your mum and dad, you'd gone in the next morning, what happened in that, in that next stage of going from one-off endeavor to, hmm, I'm now curious about doing this a bit more. Well, a slight caveat, a slightly off tangent, actually, but I remember I just started my oncology job and the, the guy that I was working for said, well, oh, you know, do you have a nice weekend? And I, I said, well, yeah, yeah, pretty tired. I did a did a, a thing. And he asked me about it. He was like, that's ridiculous. Anyway, he has now just recently last year, uh, this year, even in his just turned 60, did a half Ironman. Um, oh, wow. So that's a pretty cool story. Has he, has he been spending the last... 17 years training for it <laughs> <laughs> pretty much <laughs> like you should have done it when you were 45 <laughs> would have been a lot easier Paolo. um no what happened uh so i i went back to my normal life of just kind of going to the pub after work and going on the cross trainer at the gym and then i then i realized i did actually i really missed the the training and the purpose and and luckily there was a guy that i was working with who was part of the local tri club and he persuaded me to pluck up the courage and and give it a go. And I wouldn't have gone on my own because I, you know, I just thought they'd all be really serious and quick and geeky and nothing could be further. They were a bunch of pissheads. <laughs> um, but that was, yeah, that was what triggered me to to kind of join the club. And then I just got this whole new lease of life because actually meeting as a doctor meeting a group of people who weren't medics who were all different backgrounds all different demographics and I'm still really good friends with with a lot of the people from those days now um and that was what kind of you know helped me fall in love with triathlon for for triathlon so it became very much I would go to all the sessions we would then go to the pub afterwards it was all very sociable um not really performance based at all but obviously I was getting quicker and I had someone you know watch my swimming and stuff um but then the, the whole reason I got good was when I moved to Cambridge to do a PhD so I was a, an oncology kind of junior doctor registrar and at the time you you kind of needed to do a PhD um I didn't really I, ne I never really wanted to do a PhD so it was a big tick box on this career ladder that I was climbing and at that point I was really just climbing the career ladder as quickly as possible without thinking about what the top was or whether it was the top that I wanted to be at 
But anyway, I moved to Cambridge to do the PhD for all the wrong reasons. I'd been there as an undergrad, but, um, you know, I was going because it was prestigious. I'd been offered the world on a plate, but I, I hadn't looked into what the project was. I had no idea what it was going to be about. I didn't believe in it. Um, and I moved there. I had a, a, a supervisor who basically ignored me lost all my job satisfaction, really missing patients, was kind of turning up at the lab, not having a clue what I was doing, spend weeks working on something, it wouldn't work. And that kind of, you know, not loving work, not really like not getting satisfaction from work was what I think kind of pushed me towards using training as a way of almost validating my days. So if the lab had not gone well, at least I could have done a good run session. At least I could have done a good swim session. And that, I think, was a transition for me from being a, you know, a triathlete who trained as a social thing to go to the pub afterwards to becoming, to starting to nudge towards becoming an athlete who trained for performance. Um, and that was when I started to get good at, good at triathlon, like properly good at triathlon. I mean, it's, it's quite interesting from the point of view of the, um, economic downturn in 2008 there was a massive uptick in number of people signing up for half half marathons for example so that that sense of I've lost some of that connection or love or, or certainty in work and so I'm going to start putting it into myself I'm going to start investing in a challenge and taking care of myself but also using it to to support their mental health decompress um, whilst they're training too so that was helping you cope with having to do a PhD that you didn't really connect with and not getting the support whilst you're doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it just, you know, it helped me meet new friends and, and, and stuff in Cambridge. But actually, it, it was a way of validating my days. If, if work hadn't gone well, that was something else that I was doing. Um, and so that was, I think that was 2009, 2010. I was a, became a very good age grouper um very good age grouper and then 2011 I started racing professionally um and actually towards the end of that year I think in the September I went part-time at work um and actually by that time my PhD was starting to to get a lot better um and yeah that was kind of a, a very gradual transition and so you you're starting to take a, a step away from the the academic medical pursuit and starting to see the results but also finding a career in terms of was it starting to pay for you at that point and triathlon no I think so I think 2010 when I was when I was an age grouper I, I trained very hard around around work as an age grouper but um I think I think after that I realized I could either kind of race you know probably do very well at races without really challenging myself or I could take the step up to race on a, a professional kind of basis but I was still working full-time and I never really I, I never really planned it to become something bigger the the reason I went part-time was mainly because I realized that I wasn't I wasn't really enjoying either and I wasn't doing myself justice in either. And I, I felt I had this continual turmoil of when I was at work, I wanted to be training. And when I was training, I was, you know, I was thinking, no, I'm not necessarily, I want to be at work, but I should be at work. I'm not doing my PhD justice. And going part, one of the nicest things actually that I had a very good, I had one very bad supervisor and one very good supervisor. 
the good supervisor about a year after I went part time, he said, what's been really nice, Lucy, is seeing how, how your PhD has flourished since oh, you right. since you went part time. And, and it did. It gave me this new lease of life because um, I, I was so much more effective when I was at work because I, I could, you know, I wanted to I did, I, I did want to make the PhD work, um, but actually having that focus and not having that kind of being pulled in two directions the whole time is really nice. Uh, no, I like that. There's some nice research around that about how a goal in something completely unconnected and you pursuing it and making momentum with that goal actually just supports and, and helps you pursue um, another goal in something completely different. Yeah. And um, and then so how did your training then start to progress as you started to get more results? How was what did you sort of draw that line up for me as the how the training started to to develop to to when it um, again? So I wasn't ever really coached. Um, I had various mentors along the way. Um, I had some quite a lot of help with my swimming. Um, which with I I wish I'd got some swim technique advice very early on. I really wish that because by the time I got advice, I was so ingrained in bag technique, it was very hard to change. Um, so I guess I just gradually increased the volume. I I mean I, I think I I probably again going back to that naivety when I was starting to race pro, I had these visions about what professional and inverted commas athletes did. And I thought they did all this crazy stuff. So I went and did a hell of a lot of crazy stuff. You know, I was, uh, yeah, I I did really, really challenging stuff, but I just set myself because that's what I thought pros did. Uh, Training or preparation competitions? Training. like So I, you know, I wouldn't think of anything of running for two and a half hours. You know, when I went to Kona as an age grouper, I did two and a half hour runs on the treadmill in like in layers just because and I remember I remember the one of the ones I did and the the TV broke and I didn't have an iPod or anything so I ran two and a half hours in lots of layers in the gym with no fan and no mental stimulation and I I guess I yeah I I do no science behind any of it but um pretty challenging brick sessions when I look back um and and things I don't know I remember one weekend this is when I was an age group I think I ran the London Marathon on the Sunday and then the Wednesday I went and did an 80 mile ride or something with a bike club and then the I think it was I'm sure it was a bank holiday and the Saturday I did a hundred mile sportif, which is always races. The Sunday I did a twenty five mile time trial, and then the Monday we did a ten k race. But we cycled fifty miles there, did the ten k race, cycled back, and then did another ten k off the bike. And <laughs> this yeah, is all in an age grouper. Yeah, but looking mad. back, yeah, it's bonkers. Um, but again, I think that naivety was probably part of my success. So a couple of questions there. Take me back to the treadmill. Two and a half hours in layers. No. No music, no BBC News or anything on the TV. What, what's going on in your head? If anyone's listening to that thinking, well, I couldn't do that. So w- did you have a mental process where you're thinking, this is tough. I can't hack this. I'm just going to have to try and get through it, whether that was chunking in terms of time goals or drifting off. How did you how did you manage that? Because that's, that's quite... Um, that's quite a lot of suffering for most people. So I think, um, again, that that was, you know, firstly, I thought everyone did that. So 
So I thought that's what you needed to do to do an Ironman in Hawaii. Um, secondly, I, I think there's, I, I very, very, very rarely quit at anything. So now I would, with the knowledge I have now, knowing that that was probably not a useful, <laughs> I mean, it, it, arguably it is a useful training session, but with the knowledge I have now about how to train, um, I, I wouldn't make myself do that. But at the time I'd said I was going to do it, there was no reason not to do it or to stop other than it was boring and it was hard. But in my head, I was about to do this Ironman in Hawaii, which was hot and hard. And, you know, I there was there was no reason not to do it. So I didn't have I just I, I, yeah, I don't know. I just I very, very rarely quit at something. And I think that was why I didn't quit. No other reason than boring and hard. So I mean, those are two reasons that most people would have stopped. Um, I mean, that's that in itself, I think, is a is often a requirement for elite athletes uh, to be able to switch off and keep turning the pedals or put one foot in front of the other and switch off, not necessarily think about it too much. Um, I can remember setting a. I think it was a three and a half hour bike session for James Cracknell when he was, he was coming back for the boat race. And uh, and before I wrote it, I, I thought, right, I'm going to try and find a way to break this up a little bit so that it's, it's just a bit not as, not as uh, dull. So I was just changing the intervals, like a 20 minute interval at this. And, and he texted me back and said, are you just trying to help me, um, trying to make it interesting? Um, I, he said, look, I, I can... I can switch off with the best of them. It's fine. Just set me a power and I'll hold it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay. Well, that's that's your superpower. I would, I would probably struggle with that myself. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, mean, I remember, again, when I was starting to train properly, I was doing a big gear session one day and I think I'd written like four by 15 minutes. And I was actually like, I don't need the two minutes rest. It's not, I'm not going to go any harder having it. So I'll just take no. it out. <laughs> and that's kind of, yeah, I don't, I mean, when I when I went back to work, I I think I actually work it because the more you know and the and the longer you do it, the harder it it does get to to kind of do those crazy sessions. And actually, you realise you know technology's moved on hugely. There's no reason to Brett Sutton or someone like that would probably say it's a good thing to do, but there's no reason I don't think to to run two and a half hours with no distraction. Um, but what was my point? Uh, can't remember I've lost my train of thought um oh yeah, yeah no when I went back to work and I you know I didn't want to go for a run in around the ring roads I used to swim and leave my car at the swimming pool and run in and then I just had to go back and pick it up and it was always it, you know, it was not a nice run but actually thinking about the people I'd seen in the hospital and and just reminding myself how lucky I was to be able to to do what I was doing and actually the people I'd seen would love to be able to go and run in the ring road in the dark that was that was really helpful I think just that reminder that suffering is a privilege um so I think my work helped me from from that context but at the time I think it was just you know you said you're doing something you can keep going so just keep going and do it <laughs> can we can we lean into that that concept in itself just about how uh, how supportive or um, the, the 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 exercise providing we, you with uh, a place to ruminate or process what you've experienced that, at work was that something that um, that was really un underpinning your athletic career in itself of 
that, that sense of gratitude and a privilege to be able to, to do something so amazing. I don't know. I mean, I, so I, I had two and a half years as a full-time athlete um, and then a lot longer where I was beforehand working part-time on the PhD and then working part-time as an oncologist. And I actually found... I love my time as a full-time athlete. I it, it was incredible having that flexibility and being able to travel. And it was all so much, it was just so much fun, but there was also so much pressure. And I did struggle a little bit with self-worth because when I delved down into what I was doing, I'd, I'd always come back to this question, what what's the point? You know, it's quite selfish being a full-time athlete when everything you're doing is just trying to make yourself faster um and I think particularly when you're injured and you don't know when you're next going to be able to race it I, I found it quite a challenging place despite all the it was incredible but it, it was far harder than people realize I think than a lot of people realize and then when I went back to work it it just gave me a new lease of life because I'd already achieved everything I ever wanted to achieve in in triathlon. Um, I'd raced the last world championship. I'd broken, broken my collarbone eight weeks before. And it was just such a, that race taught me everything I ever needed to know about myself. So the only reason to carry on racing was because I loved it. And I, I just felt that triathlon had become this pure joy again, just something that I was doing just because I wanted to. And um, I had no pressure. I felt like I was the underdog because in my head I could say, you know, I'm an oncologist. I'm working part time, doing something useful. I know I can make a difference in my day job. It doesn't matter what happens in triathlon. And that just, yeah, it was hard balancing the time and things, but it did just give me such a lease of life. And and then I think, you know, that that remembering how lucky you are. I think I. I think I do, I do reflect a lot on how short life is and how you never know what's around the corner. And I think that was probably a, a real asset for my triathlon when I was juggling the two, because it meant that I savoured, I savoured every single race that I did, every single win. I, I always thought this could be the last time. And now I'm retired. I, I'm just so glad I did consciously bottle the memories and I think some people don't take the time to actually think when you're running down towards the finish line this is amazing this could be the last time this ever happens and I'm so glad that I I had the foresight to to actually bottle those memories like I still get shivers thinking about it now <laughs> was that was that a perspective that that came from seeing pain and suffering and and death in cancer wards or was that something that was ingrained in you previously in terms of a spirit of opportunity and a sense of of who you are and and exploring those opportunities mm, I think it I think it is work I think um I think I, I I struggle I struggle I love my job but I I probably don't compartmentalize it as much as I should and sometimes it affects me it affects me more than, you know, more than it may do some oncologists. Um, and and that's hard. I think, I don't know where you draw that line. I do a lot of work with young people and and, and that it, it's such an amazing, amazing job, but it can be so, so tough. So, so tough that you can't even really describe how hard it can be sometimes. But just, but yeah, I think, I think work, 
it does. How can you not help when you see people, you're having conversations with people, telling them, you know, in their 20s that they've got incurable cancer. How can that not make you reflect on on how lucky we are to be able to do the simple things? And um, sometimes I, I consciously use that, you know, when I'm feeling like I can't really don't want to go and do something. I think, well, actually just think how lucky you are to be able to do it. But um, I think most of it's just subconscious and and it makes, it does, it makes you want to Mm. grasp life with two hands and go and live it and make, you know, on a sunny day, go outside and and be in the sun because you just, you just don't know. And maybe it's not a particularly healthy way to think, but yeah, I, I feel like it's, it's just, I, I just am quite a grateful person most of the time, but I'm sure it is partly because of work. And and can I ask how you do cope? How do you cope with those tough moments? You say you you don't compartmentalise it enough. I presume that's a hint to the fact that you're surrounded by some colleagues that use that process of, of trying to box it off. I can certainly think of a few doctors that I've met over the years that in a quite a, a, quite a cold way, and it sounds very cold if you're hearing that for the first time, about how they compartmentalize it um how do you cope um most of the time i'm fine like, i think um i think you can have one one really tough conversation a day and and deal with it and it's just every now and then you get you know you, you it all comes in circles and i yeah i realized for me um i kind of know how long i can work without taking not not in terms of hours but how many weeks i can work without taking a break so I, I factor that in um, and sometimes will prophylactically book a couple of extra days off just because I know I'll, I'll need it. Um, it's generally, ex- you know, on Friday, Thursday, was uh, it was such an awful day. Just so much horrible stuff going on. And, and actually Friday, it took me all of Friday and Friday night and Saturday, really not, not really thinking, not really mulling it over. Almost, I don't know, your brain brains are clever things and um just thinking of think I guess reflecting on it processing it and then kind of trying to move on from it um so I yeah for me it's I think it's I call it Lucy time and you know my partner's very supportive he um he he knows that every now and then I just need to go off on my own and actually talking about it isn't that helpful for me I think it's just letting it do whatever it does in its brain and um yeah but I think I think that's the harder I think with the NHS it's the probably what the biggest advice I'd give to any junior doctor actually is is do a little bit of thinking about what you need to stay sane and I remember I remember years ago as a registrar actually I just burst into tears in clinic so before triathlon and the consultant I was I mean I just started triathlon consultant I was working with said Lucy whenever you get like that you need a holiday and it stuck with me and I, I you know mm-hmm. booking leave knowing that you so I've got leave I've got a couple of weeks in in a couple of weeks time and knowing that that is there makes it so easy to, so much easier to to deal with and I think that was the hard thing with COVID that you couldn't really book I mean you could book leave but it wasn't getting away and that not having that booked in made it a lot harder. So I know that you've written um, uh, a lot in your campaign about the use of exercise to support uh, cancer so in some ways you're actually 
promoting it as a as a tool to to help the doctors who help other people in that sense as well yeah yeah i well yeah and um, you know the evidence for exercise for people with cancer is is pretty good but i think the evidence for exercise for mental health is is also yeah is also really good and i think i think there is some evidence you probably know better than me for that kind of ending ending your day and people working from home that transition actually having a clear transition period between finishing work and being whatever you do in the evenings and I I guess working from home a lot of people don't get that and exercise is such a good way of of doing that yeah no I think there are well certainly when you attach movement to that or um, at least some mundane activities a lot of people will say well I'll reflect in the car but the the level of alpha wave activity in the brain tends to be so much more enhanced if you're moving or doing repetitious activities such as one pedal after another Um, and that allows a lot more deeper processing kind of interconnections of different thoughts and I think that 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 sense of of being able to block time off that allows you to do that thoroughly and really well means that you're going to enjoy the evening as much as anything you're going to enjoy the the next bit um, at a high level. Yeah, okay, so so can I come back to a comment that you made about how it felt as an athlete, as a full-time athlete, and that you had this sort of almost discomfort with the self-focus. Um, and then that's quite that's quite well associated with success. Um, certainly the, the studies of elites and super elites, um, that ability to focus on self and what, on their needs um, is quite predictive. Um, ha- so tell me a little bit about that dynamic, about how you started to feel that for the first time. Was that some sort of um, momentum as you started to to progress through your career? You started thinking, well, if I get this, then I get that. Then if I get this, and it starts to move me on. And it's and it starting to almost pull you in as to everything you need to do is for you. So I never struggled with training hard. I struggled with recovery. And one of the, one of the biggest things I struggled with, actually as a full-time athlete was was napping and not doing anything in the afternoons and I I think that's probably when I realized it most so I'd, I'd quite often on a you know on a Thursday say I'd swim in the morning really early everyone else everyone that was swimming would go into work um then I'd go and do a bike ride and then I'd go and sit and watch Netflix for four hours and it might you know I put the blinds down it's sunny outside because and I'd, I'd literally make myself do nothing for three or four hours and then I'd go and do my interval session with the running club and I really struggled with that because because it just felt so pointless I just would think you know and I'd be running with people who'd been at work and and I what had I done I'd I sat and watched Netflix. What's the point? Like, why am I, you know, why does it matter how it, I, I did, I, yeah, I did really struggle with that. Um, and I, I guess I found ways of, you know, maybe I'd, I, I wrote a column for 220 Triathlon. I kind of found that quite rewarding because I could share stuff or doing some stuff in a school or with a kids' triathlon, you know, little bits. And actually, with, with reflection, you don't realize in the time, but just by doing what you're doing you are inspiring other people but you don't necessarily appreciate that at the time um and yeah I'm not sure I've answered your question but I um I I did struggle with that kind of whole 
being purely focused and you know you you I miss weddings I I would you know you miss social stuff you're you're going to bed early you're getting up early you're very strict about well I can't have dinner at nine o'clock at night because I've got to get up at five to go swimming it's you feel like all these sacrifices are they really worth it just to be as quick as you can be Mm. um I remember Chrissy Wellington mm. saying something once about she struggled with this and um, someone said to her, but Chrissy, the better you are, the bigger the platform you'll get. And I think you don't, you don't, you know, and then you can do more to change the world than you, you ever, ever realise. Um, and I'm not sure you necessarily appreciate that when you're in it, um, but, but you can... Yeah, sharing experiences and things can make a, a big difference, but it's hard to... I don't know, I guess my job, you know, as an oncologist, every day, whatever you do, no matter how bad things get, you you always have the opportunity to make a difference. And generally, if you do a good job, people will say thank you. And and I, I you know, it makes me sound a horrible person, but I think that's quite important for me to... To, to know that I've made enough of a difference for people to say thank you. And, and you don't get that, you know, no one says thank you as a pro because what are they thanking you for? <laughs> yeah, no, I think it definitely answers the question. Is, is that is that sense of, I suppose my, my question was curious about whether the fact that you'd have to be managing sponsors for yourself, um, maintaining your bike for yourself, booking the competition schedule for yourself, everything was just um perpetuating that self-focus um versus what you've sort of described is actually that um some of the things that you needed to do um they weren't as perhaps visceral or physical you had to put something in there that you didn't really feel the point of it and i think it's one of the the, I'm, i'm supporting an athlete at the moment they just do not connect with the fact that they need to protect much more around their recovery that's the bit that's going to really help them, um, not just the training bit where you feel like you're doing something. You feel like you've got a response when actually the adaptation and the cell signals respond all afterwards during Netflix. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, so in that sense of um, being able to look after yourself, did you start to then build this vision of a of a purpose as you say Chrissy she described that on the podcast previously too about recognizing those moments when she became world champion that it, it allowed her to communicate in a different way I think she talked about the first time she won the um, the worlds and she gave a very different speech and so that did you start to to connect with well what's the point well let's find a point let's find a purpose to to what I'm doing really because I you know at the time I so I initially only had one year out and then I extended that to a two-year out it's a bit like renewing your lease (laughs) on a flat and then (laughs) I after begging and you know threatening resigning etc I I managed to get another season so another six months or whatever out so I was always I was always kind of feeling like I was on borrowed time as a as a pro athlete um and you know, was very much trying to make the most of it and, you know, savour the opportunities and things. But um, 
I guess at the back of my mind, I was always going to go back to work. Um, so I, I, I think that was that was a real privilege to know that I did have a career to go back to. Um, I would have probably been much, much harder had I left medicine without having something to to fall back into. Okay, so that that view of well, actually, I've only got this op- this window of opportunity, so so I might as well, might as well maximise it. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I guess that was a little bit why I, I, I really did think quite often every Iron Man was going to be my last um, because I, yeah, I, I was going back to work and then I managed to extend it. And, and then I, did, I, never, I never thought I'd continue racing when I did go back to work, but I ended up doing, doing so for, for, for a while. And whilst you were pro then, did you start, studying it a bit more in terms of getting physiological testing or getting nutrition support um doing aero work and any of that sort of sense no i was a winger um did you have you found out anything (laughs) i my assets were my determination my work ethic um and my my love for it and the fact that i i never give up um i mean i did i did you know I think nutrition I, I I genuinely think you don't need a nutritionist you just need to be fairly sensible eat a good diet and I ate very well I was you know I did I did kind of consciously eat well but normal food I mean I, I, I used whey protein and things but that was it um I didn't I did one test one lot of testing once um I think helping a friend out I'm not sure it was some some PhD or something um but I wouldn't have known how to use it I did have a power meter but again I didn't really I I my brain I just because I was doing it for fun and I I realized I actually 20 so the first year I went full-time I spoke to Chrissy on the phone and she told me what she used to do and I think that then made me I decided I was going to train like Chrissy and do it very seriously. And, and all that happened was I ended up injured and lost the love right. for it. But that was a really good kind of learning because um, I just work better by doing it for fun. So for me, if I need to do intervals rather than doing, you know, six by six minutes, I would go out and I would do a fartlek around the villages where I'd ride really hard between the signs and it might be four minutes and eight minutes it didn't really matter but you're getting the same kind of stimulus um and the same with I'd go out with the boys and just say could you try and drop me on the hills or something um and uh, arguably you know it wasn't the cleverest training but it worked for me because it was consistent and it kept it fun. And that was the way for, you know, I would, I would always do the hard stuff much better if I had a friend around me. So if it meant compromising my session, but doing it with a friend, it would be much better to do it that way than, than stick. And, you know, nothing infuriated me more than age groupers who, you know, you say, do you want to do a ride? And I mean, oh, I've got to do my eight by two minutes. And there's just no compromise. It doesn't matter if you do, in my book, it doesn't matter if you do two minutes or three minutes, as long as you're going hard. Um, and as long as you've got that balance of hard stuff. And But I think I think things have moved on a lot now. I think I, I left at the right time because I, I wouldn't be able to race at the level that I did now without doing all the aero testing and everything. Well, I don't disagree in that sense. And this, and this is um, probably where science meets the art of, of get, getting people active when I think we can overcomplicate things which we've touched on already but but trying to 
offer too much control and checking your heart rate every two seconds that means that you're not enjoying it but you're also you it's very it's a very fixed version of of training and you're also probably not going to get any different adaptation as to with you just enjoyed it and went up and down and roundabout um i remember one triathlete coming into to our labs years ago now and they had a big bang on their head and um they bumped their head on a lamppost because they'd been their head down looking at uh at their heart rate watch and I was like, that's, that's not a good sign that you know you're trying to control the incline that means that you you can only run certain routes at a certain heart rate in variable weather conditions and I, so i remember as a it was this is when i was still an age group actually and it was i, I it was a breakthrough race it was a vitruvian and i think it was probably the race of my career where i raced at the best level compared to my physical, you know, outraced my physical capabilities. Um, And I didn't expect to win it. And I was a very good friend that I was racing against. But I came in off the bike and I was in the lead and I left my Garmin on my bike because I only had one Garmin. And I ran out of transition, probably like 100 metres or something, realised I'd left my Garmin, was going to run back to get get it because I was thinking... I can't run without my Garmin. I need my, my, I need my Garmin. I didn't made that decision. And I just ran and I ran as hard as I could and I finished. And I think probably I ran about 30 seconds a mile quicker than I would have done had I had my Garmin. Cause if I'd had my Garmin, I would have said I can run, you know, making it up say seven minute miles. And actually I ran, I've got no idea exactly the splits, but I, I would have limited myself to, I know I can run seven minute miles or run seven minute miles. Instead, I just ran as hard as I could at a pace that I thought I could maintain for the run. And I ran, I think I ran about four or five minutes quicker than I, I would have expected to. Um, so again, that was a really good learning. And, and I, I'm definitely someone who races much better than I train. So I would I would always... It's, you know the guys that I used to train with would always be really kind of how do you race so well like I always beat you when I do hill reps and I think there's an element that I was always in mm. you know deep training so it was quite fatigued but there's also an element mm. that I do I'm someone who finds an extra element extra kind of level when I'm when I'm in a race setting yeah interesting interesting I, I think there's layers to it in that sense of if you get the fundamentals right and you are responsive to your own feel i.e. you're using the feedback to reflect on and change as opposed to that's determining how I feel. Um, that That's the... And then you can start add layers of sophisticated nutrition or mindset or goals or psychology um, on top, I think. Yeah, and I think I, I'm probably quite good at pacing. I think natural... Some good people are not good at pacing, but I, I guess I've always been quite good at knowing what level of intensity I can hold but I think psychology I did quite a lot of psychology and and actually for me that was about removing limiting beliefs and working on confidence um and yeah that made a big difference as well of all the races all the events that you've um taken part in what's the what's the outcome that you're most pleased with what what race were you most pleased with Oh, that's interesting. Um, first Ironman, finishing that, like that was achieving the impossible. Um, 
I mean, I'm I'm very proud, obviously, of all the, all my wins. Um, but I think I'm, I'm hugely proud. I came ninth in Kona eight weeks after breaking my collarbone. I'm hugely proud of that. But I think when I look back, I'm most proud of the bad days. So I never once DNF'd. I finished every single race I've ever, ever, ever started. And I'm really proud of that because I think a lot of people pull out on a bad day. Um, and so I'm proud when I, yeah, of, of the bad days where I just gritted it out and I finished, I think, always with a smile. Um, I think I, I'm proud that I I kind of, I like to think I was quite a good loser because, you know, the better you get, the more well-known you are. And I had days where everyone thought I would win and I was, you know, I was nowhere. Um, so it's funny what you're proud of. Like, I, you know, of course I'm proud of the wins, but I think those bits, are, certainly the, the always finishing is something that, for me, was was really important. You mentioned the um, the worlds where you broke your collarbone um, just prior, and you, I think you said something earlier that you um, it it taught you everything you needed to know about yourself. So what happened there? Oh, it was so I was always it was twenty sixteen, and I was always going back to work two weeks after that race. Like that had that was the end of <laughs> my time out. I'd mm. I'd eked it out as long as I possibly could. Um, so that was a non-negotiable. Um, so in my head, it was going to be my last ever Ironman. I, I didn't, I didn't think it would be possible to, to continue racing when I went back. And I, you know, I, I always struggled a bit in Kona. It's not really a race that suits me. I'm not that good in the heat. So I like the technical courses. But that year, I had been tenth the year before. I just really wanted to go out on a bang, and I had belief that I could do. I, you know, I'd cracked the code as it was the year before. So I felt I could go back and, and actually really race. Um, and then obviously I broke the collarbone eight weeks before. And I thought that was, you know, that was it. And I was going to fizzle out and that was my career. And it had just ended with a broken collarbone. Um, and yeah, I ended up, so I got it plated. Um, and I think the hardest part was probably the, the three weeks after the surgery when I was in this limbo land of not really, you know, the surgical mm. advice is, is very conservative um, after, after surgery and, you know, would probably be don't lift anything heavier than a kettle for 10 weeks or whatever. Um, and there was me kind of in this limbo land doing all these horrible turbo sessions. Um, Cause that was, you know, I obviously couldn't ride my bike outside thinking, is this all worth it? It's probably not worth it. Watching everyone on social media, out in Hawaii doing their stuff. So that limbo land was really hard. But with hindsight, I think, um, and I'd also actually, <laughs> a boyfriend and I had broken up just a couple of weeks before that. It's oh, quite, no, a, you know, know, quite a serious boyfriend. So there's that in the mix as well, recurring theme. Um, <laughs> but I, yeah, I think, I think just going through those lows and then getting on that start line, I got there with no pressure. Just, I, I was purely just racing with joy. And I, yeah, I, you know, no one expected anything from me. I didn't expect anything from myself. I just knew that I was, this is the last time and I might ever do. And I was going to out there and race with my, you know, give it everything I had and just, just embrace being there. And um, yeah, I think because of that, I had a really good, and at one point I was running along and I was thinking, I was just running through the field thinking, God, I'm going to end up fifth or something. And then the wheels fell off a bit on the run <laughs> and I ended up ninth. But um, yeah, but looking, but after that, I think I just realized that was, 
you know, I didn't enter, try, I entered one to achieve the impossible. And that was, I guess, an impossible to end, end my career that I'd, I'd done something that I shouldn't really have been able to, to do. And I think I, it showed me how tough I was, you know, who knows where I'd have finished without the collarbone. I might've been higher, I might've been lower because I might've put so much pressure on, but it, it, it was irrelevant. The result was irrelevant. What mattered was that I knew, I'd, I knew how hard I could push myself. I knew what lows I could go through and come out the other side. Um, and I think because of that, actually, then I I realised I I still loved it, and I'd come ninth at the World Championships with a broken collarbone. Like there was no reason why I had to stop. Like you know, why not just give it a go when you're back at work? You still want to. Your heart's still telling you you want to. So just give it a go. It doesn't matter if you if you're rubbish, you're rubbish. But so what? You proved yourself what 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 you needed to. Um, and so I think that whole collarbone was why I continued racing for another, I think two and a half years or whatever, another three years or something. Yeah. But working, yeah. And I I I won another eight Ironman races after that, working part-time as an oncologist. Um so it was, yeah, with hindsight, it was a very good collarbone break. Um, but at the time it felt disastrous. <laughs> yeah, so you just swapped the Netflix out for a shift, did you? Is that you you just uh fill fill the time between training sessions with work well pretty much <laughs> um yeah so I was working three days a week and then training around it um and actually I remember my last the last proper last proper race I did when I was still training professionally was Ironman Wales in 2018 um and I was driving up there with the, and I'd had my my final ever oncology exams three days before. And I just remember driving up there and I was talking to my friend who was also my sports psychologist. And she said, how are you feeling? I was like, I just feel so lucky. Everyone else, it's such a big day. For me, it's just, it's just this fun day out. And um, yeah, it was, I had a great time. I mean, it was, it was hard, the time management, obviously, it, you know, don't gloss over that, but. Yeah, I'm still not convinced you, when you say you're not that good at recovery, I'm still not convinced, you know, describing those weeks, just sound like a Duracell bunny myself, but, um, but then you, re did you retire, and then you did the Norseman, um, is that retiring? I don't know if that's retiring or not. <laughs> well, so that's an interesting one, we, I was talking about that with someone this weekend, so 2017 and 18, I was, I was still training professionally, and, and people say, well, what does that mean you were working, but actually, for me, I think training professionally is where everything you're doing is focused around being the best athlete you can be. So if I had, if I was at Friends for the weekend, I would find a swimming pool. If I was going out for dinner, I would leave at, you know, 9.30 to get in, to get so that I can make the swimming session in the morning. Um, I would, I would make sure that I eat, ate well. I would never miss a session. Um and yes, I was doing a lot of other stuff as well, but but triathlon was was you know work and triathlon were both equal priority. But then 20, 2018 was uh, twenty nineteen. I I carried on. I did do a few races. So I did Norseman. I did Ironman Wales again. But I wasn't I wasn't training as a professional athlete. So I was still training, and by most people's standards, I was probably training a hell of a lot. But actually, it's the little things that make the difference between you being the best you can be. And I would use the example, if I was at Friends for the weekend, I wouldn't bother finding a swimming pool. If 
we were going out after work, I would just stay out and finish the dinner and miss the swim session. And you're probably only missing maybe two sessions a week or, or maybe not giving your full intensity to two or three sessions a week. But that's a big difference in terms of of performance. And I think that's something that people who've never, never been a professional athlete don't understand that it's actually the little things that make the biggest difference. Um, and, and to be a professional, I think you have to be 100%, 100% yeah, well, it's interesting because that's that would probably give a clue as to you were quite close to your optimum uh, in that sense. That if you just take the brakes off a little bit, you just take the edge off that that you've noticed a, a, a you know a, a notable loss in form or power or pace, or um, or that you are maybe over recovered for <laughs> for a session that you you actually feel like you've got energy for it. Um, I think sometimes we, we see this quite often where actually people back off a little bit for whatever reason because they've got they've got stresses or exams or they've got um, they've got um, additional loads but sometimes they've got a bit of a, a niggle or an injury they have to back off their overall training load and they improve that that in that sense well they've they haven't been optimal there's a classic case of Seb Co I think it was 1977 or 78. And he was at Loughborough University. He was studying there. And he had said to his father, um, look, final year coming up. I'm just going to focus on that. Uh, I don't I don't want to put my athletics career kind of second now. And so they, they just chopped the training load in half. And he broke three world records that year. So that, that was a sense of doing a little bit less, but actually improving considerably more. Well, I think well, I remember my husband, my husband, my um sister's husband out in Mallorca at the end of 2018. I was doing some, so I would say my last professional race was I'm on Wales in 2018. And then I did a I was doing Patagon Man, so I knew I needed to stay fit for it, but I couldn't really be asked to train. So I decided I'd just enter some races and kind of you know use them to get fit. So to stay fit. So I did uh, some half Ironmans. So I just kept winning. Um hmm. and he he said to me he was out in Mallorca because we had a holiday out for one of the I think it was challenge challenge Mallorca or something he said don't you don't you wish you'd realize that you could do this well without training like <laughs> I don't know because I, I really love the training um but 2019 was very di- like I was I was a very different I'd had three months off I'd been uh cycle touring and I was very much it exercising a lot but I wasn't training with any purpose but I was still you know it takes a while to lose that fitness as well particularly if you're if you're exercising so I could still go and win Norseman like I came I did Ironman Wells and I came fourth but it was I call that my glory race it was so I was still fit but it was very different from being yeah yeah interesting yeah you're you're probably benefiting from from years of developing a base um and that racing allowed you to get race fit relatively quickly in that sense yeah yeah interesting well look um before you know i've taken a lot of your time but i'd love to ask you a little bit about some of the work that you're you're doing to support cancer patients um the move against cancer podcast um tell me a little bit about that that project and that charity sort of work oh so yeah so i do a lot of work with move charity um which um which supports people with cancer to get active and stay active. And back in 
2018 actually um I it's funny how things pan out but I, I I remember walking onto the ward to to give a young person a prescription for something and I'd not I never met him and he'd had a um before but the, the nurse had said can you come and give some I can't remember what it was pain relief or something and he'd had a, a brain tumor and he'd theoretically been cured of his cancer but in in the process he had put on several stone in weight he'd lost his job he'd lost most of his friends he was spending all day asleep all night awake and I just remember meeting him and thinking you know what what's the point of curing someone if that's the life that that you're left with and I you know I've always loved park run and I just had had the idea at that point well maybe we can get um we could try and get a group of young people with cancer to train up to a park run once every few months and the you know kind of touted it around some of the nurses who weren't very supportive and then I'd heard about Gemma Hillier Moses who was an amazing amazing young person who'd had cancer herself she was an elite runner um, and she had co-founded she had founded Move Charity about a year and a half before um, with the aim of providing young people with cancer with the support that she never had to to stay running to get running and stay active so I reached out to her and said, I've got this idea. What do you think we could, you know, think we can do something? And long story short, we, we thought, well, let's get a group and just, you know, put some fires up, try and get a group of people affected by cancer down to the park run um, and just see where it goes. And that was how five, so 5K Your Way Move Against Cancer is, um, and we it's an active support group with a difference. And we just have, uh, we're just groups of people living with and after cancer, their friends, their families, healthcare professionals who meet at park runs across the UK and Ireland on the last Saturday of every month. Um, I think we've now got 80 odd groups around the country, um, which is, yeah, which is pretty cool. Um, there is a lot of evidence around the benefits of being active for people living with and after cancer. So, we know it's safe, we know it makes people feel better, we know it reduces anxiety, depressive symptoms, improves quality of life, but there's also evolving evidence that it may actually reduce the risk of cancers coming back, right, possibly okay. increased response rates to, to cancer treatments, um, possibly affect how well people tolerate treatments. So there's a lot of science behind it. Um, so 5K Your Way kind of was born. We then decided to run that under the umbrella of Move Charity. Um, and the podcast came about in lockdown when obviously our groups were put on hold and we'd just got the funds to employ a manager for 5K Your Way. And then all of a sudden lockdown came, all the groups were put on hold. So we thought, well, what can we do? We can perhaps do some um, kind of interviews with people did a series of Facebook live um, kind of interviews with either educational with experts or inspirational with people who were doing crazy things despite cancer. Um, and then we decided to turn it into podcasts. So the Move Against Cancer podcast shares the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things um, mm. with a cancer diet, you know, despite cancer. Um, and I think that's something I feel really strongly about that, some of the stories I see in work are so powerful and, and, you know, people, athletes, like people would look at me when I was running races and I'd be, that's amazing. That, yeah, I, but actually I'm still the same person that I was when I was doing that first time and then I was doing it in 12 hours or whatever. And I think the people that I see at work who are just 
sometimes just living life despite something unimaginable like the tenacity the the love the bravery the way they find a way to create a path through something you can never imagine um we just I just wanted to share some of those stories um and so yeah we we've had we've had a real variety of people a lady who swam the channel on chemotherapy um Paula Radcliffe and her daughter um a young guy who just you know, he's got incurable cancer, but he goes and scores 100 with local cricket team, essentially with his local cricket team. Um, all really diverse people, but just kind of, I guess, normalising the fact that, that the cancer stereotype that still exists is not what it has to be and, and changing the face of cancer. And I think sometimes something that people say is, is they never realised that you could live when you were diagnosed with cancer and people think it's, you know on tv it's still you lose your hair you're vomiting and then you die you never never actually there's so many people living with incurable cancer for for many years with who have a really good quality of life and a lot of what we're doing is just about normalizing that and and letting people know that it's safer to be active than it is to be inactive oh wow yeah i mean that's such a strong strong message but as you say increasingly underpinned by research and an evidence base that that it's actually going to be helpful for you and I suppose and I, and I don't know in terms of about positive mindset and so on about approaching cancer and, and attacking it and the people talk about it in these terms but that I'd imagine that gives cancer patients some agency around this is something I can do that is going to facilitate and support my recovery or chances of it not recurring in that sense yeah so that's something that people often say is is control that that um, being able to to be active helps them feel like themselves again it's quite interesting because if you look at all the cancer charities and look at complementary therapies so most people with cancer will experiment with complementary therapies at, at some point in their in their cancer diagnosis but none of them list exercise, but exercise is the only one that's got any benefit at all. So complementary therapy is something you use alongside your standard treatment. And exercise is really the only one that's got any evidence at all, but it's not listed on any of the main, main charities. And I think, you know, really often in clinic, when someone you love is diagnosed with cancer, the natural instinct is to kind of wrap them in cotton wool and do everything for them and look after them and tell them to rest and recover and and that's a natural human instinct and actually for a lot of people it's just as simple as as giving people permission that it is okay to be active um but i think what we're trying to do at move is i guess inspire empower and and educate people as to how they can can be active and uh, as to the fact that it is something that they can do that will probably make them at the very least make them feel better but may also influence what happens with their cancer so what why is that not listed is that is that some aversion to um asking somebody to give effort or experience some exercise that uh, discomfort exercise sorry discomfort that might come from exercise i think a lot of it stems from you know traditionally it was thought that you should rest um right. that, so 20 years ago it was very much you've got cancer you need you need to rest um i think a lot of healthcare professionals not talking it, it to it to it about to their patients about it is because 
as a population, we're a very inactive population. So if I do right. a, a talk and ask, you know, a group of 30 healthcare professionals, how many people meet the recommended exercise targets each week, I would say 90% of them don't. So it's very hard if exercise isn't part of your life to then know how to broach it to someone with cancer. And people think, people think as well that, you know, you've just been told you've got cancer, you've got enough on your plate. And I would challenge that. I would say, you've just been told you've got cancer. You want to know what you can do that's going to help. And there's actually very little, but but moving and being active is something that, that will help. Mm. Um, and so I feel really strongly that we need to, at the very least, just be giving people permission and saying, just keep moving. You don't need to phrase it as exercise. And I think right. exercise for people who don't exercise is, is probably quite, um, what's the word? It's probably quite difficult to get your head around, but moving, walking, just getting outside. That's, that's, that's the first step. Um, and obviously, yes, ideally we'd get, you know, get people active, but honestly, the 5k away groups, when you see, I've got this amazing man called Roger, who's 78 and he's got, He's got very advanced bowel cancer, and on his seventy-eighth birthday, he decided he was he'd been bothered. He used to walk it, and then he got poorly, and then so he used to walk it when he was diagnosed. Then he got more poorly because of treatment. Then um, he's been volunteering, and then he just announced on his seventy-eighth birthday he was going to walk it the whole thing. His wife Doreen kind of was like, "What? You can't do it!" And honestly, when he finished, he had his whole family there. He jogged the last twenty meters, and I watched it. I was like. He has got that feeling that I had when I won an Ironman. And, and people, we have this amazing lady called Sue who's died now, but she, she kind of had never run ever. She was 70 or 71 when she was diagnosed, was in the hospital, couldn't get out of bed, saw a flyer, kind of joking for the 5K Yoi group, jokingly said, I'm going to do that when I get out of here. Um, couldn't even walk to the toilet. Then got out of hospital that month she turned up she walked it jogged a little bit built up to running the whole thing and she she always said for her it was just the crutch and it gave her something to focus on that was a date in the diary that wasn't cancer because when you've got cancer and you're on treatment everything revolves around hospital appointments and chemotherapy dates and scan dates and when you might get your scan dates and having this something positive to aim at um and she said you've got this great quote she said when people ask me how I am I don't talk about the cancer I just tell them I've started running um and yeah it was amazing so it can be it can be a real life changer and, and you know Sue died but it gave her a lot in the two and a half years that that she was alive having treatment just love love that and just goosebumps hearing about Roger and Sue and and that that outlet so um so powerful so congratulations to that. And um, I'd encourage anyone who knows, anyone who's got cancer to be tuning into it. Um, so it's 5kyourway.org and movecharity.org. They're the websites. But um, yeah, if you do know anyone who's got cancer, I think that the take homes are give them permission to get outside and tell them it's probably going to make them feel better. At the very least, it's going to make them feel better, but it might also do a lot more than that. Oh, look, Lucy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your journey, sharing your insights, sharing the perspective of keeping sport in check versus what you're doing at work. But but um, the pursuit of of supporting people through those difficult times 
and just a, such a strong sense of gratitude for the gifts that you've had, but also the opportunities that you've had. Thank you so much for sharing. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, I'm really flattered. So thank you. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's all absolute our pleasure. Thank you, Lucy. you so much for taking the time to listen i really hope you enjoyed this week's conversation now we've got plenty more to come so if you'd like to support and champion us then take the time to subscribe and leave a review on spotify itunes stitcher youtube or wherever you tune in you can also give us a follow on twitter instagram and linkedin all the links are in the show notes so in the meantime have a great week